0: Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts, a unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates
1: learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact
0: on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating review or both. Hi everyone, and a welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys Podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Tina Fornwald. Tina was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and after graduating high school, she enlisted in the United States Army, retired in 2020 as Chief Warrant Officer 2. While in the Army, she pursued higher education, earning a bachelor's degree in finance with a minor in accounting. Tina was ordained into the ministry in August of 2010. While in the Army, she met her late husband, Mark W. Fornwald. Tina and Mark married and had two adult children, Catherine and Alexander. Their children were and are the heartbeats of their cherished 32 years together. In 2015, Tina was diagnosed with breast cancer. With the love of Mark, her children, family, friends, and faith, Tina survived several operations and cancer treatments. Then in 2017, Mark and Tina were enjoying a weekend in Delaware when Mark had a massive heart attack and died. The life Tina had come to love was suddenly turned upside down. She sought solace in God to figure out life without Mark in the following days, months, and years. Tina began connecting with other widows and widowers to grasp insight and understanding of this challenging journey, which became instrumental to her well-being. Over the years, Tina became the person other widows and widowers sought out on how to navigate their grief. Tina Fornwald is a woman who had a mission to help and support others navigate through grief. She is the founder of Widowhood Real Talk with Tina, her registered 501c3 with the mission to create a safe space for candid discussions on the journey of grief while connecting the widowhood community with an extensive range of professionals, materials and support groups to foster encouragement, healing and hope, not just to live but create a life where they thrive. And with that, Tina, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today.
1: Hello, Dave, and to your entire community. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy schedule to be with us, and I know our listeners will benefit from, from our discussion tonight. Thank you. Please tell us a, a little bit about the experience or experiences that have influenced your life path.
1: Wow. Thank you, Dave. That is a really good question. And I'm glad you made it plural because there's generally more than one particular event that impacts our life. I think the first place in my life was impacted by growing up in Chicago. Our dad was a Chicago police officer. And just that lifestyle, the things that he experienced and how that impacted his family. Our dad worked full-time. My mom was a full-time housewife. So, we had our mother there taking care of us. I remember when a lot of children would have to eat lunch in school. We literally lived a block from the school and we would go home to eat lunch. That seemed like not the best thing, but when I look back reflecting on life, that was one of the most wonderful things to be able to have that family unit. From there, a lot of structure was provided by our dad being a police officer. So, me going into the military was an easy fit. In fact, I remember. In basic training, thinking, this is going to be kind of easy, where a lot of people were falling apart. And based on how I was raised, it was already something ingrained in me. And why I was able to just be able to thrive in the military experience. Meeting my husband was probably a gift that the Army gave me that sometimes people get and it doesn't last a lifetime. And meeting my late husband and the military is a melting Of experiences. I would have never met this gentleman from Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania had we not probably met in the military. And we were both young, had not had a lot of experiences in life. And just to be able to grow with someone and love them and just authentically get to develop into who you are with someone else cheering you on in life was beautiful. Being able to travel in the military has been something that I know that took me beyond the city blocks of Chicago to literally have seen the whole world, to have visited different countries, experienced people in their own particular culture, and realized that the world is a big place. Those are some of the things that I think about that has just impacted my life and who I am today.
0: I've never been in the military, but I have a lot of friends who have been in the military, and what they share with me is their experiences from serving overseas, uh, learning about different cultures, learning about different ways of life, interacting uh, with individuals from all walks of life. And as you described, they described it to me as a big melting pot of experiences. And they learn to get along famously with individuals from all walks of life. We can learn a great deal of lessons, you know, given what's going on in our society today about that in terms of being able to find common ground and come together based on, on shared values. And that's one of the things that, um, that my friends in the military have taught me. So thanks for that. The other thing you mentioned about coming home for to eating lunch at school, one of the memories that I have was that I, w- I was raised by three women after my father had left, my mother and my maternal grandmother and my maternal aunt. And every time I'd come home from school, she'd have a a big loaf of pita bread hot out of the oven with milk, a big glass of milk, and slathered in butter. I still remember that. And, you know, given the the geographic distance between families now, I cherish those days where we were all together and we were all close. I know I mentioned in the bio that uh, your husband, your Mark, died very suddenly on a vacation uh, when you're in Delaware. What were the specific challenges that you encountered when you found yourself suddenly widowed, and what resources have you found to be most helpful in transcending those challenges? The devastation
1: of the reality that he died was shocking. Being an ordained minister, I have supported other people whose family members have died, and I liken it to different therapists that I have supported, there's one thing when you have a trained knowledge of supporting other people going through something that is very different when you are in that space. You have all of the training. You have all of the understanding. You know you can think in your mind of all the people that you've helped. But that separation from the person that you have spent 32 years with for me, and they are gone. And waking up to that reality day after day after day after day. A lot of times people say, Oh, you know, you just got to get through the first year. And what I realized, they are still dead after that first year. What happens after that first year? Your mind is not so much in this grief fog, and you are now in the throes of reality. And now oftentimes your brain is fully functioning and you have come to the conclusion you cannot run away from this any longer. One of the first things that was beneficial for me, a friend gave me a book called I Wasn't Ready to Say Goodbye. In fact, it is something that Widowhood Real Talk with Tina donates to people when they um, lose a loved one. Every person that we have given that book to, they have found it extremely helpful. There are so many details in there that just talks about different parts of grief, whether it's disenfranchised grief. My husband uh, died of a heart attack. There are some people that may have lost a loved one to an accident, something unplanned, a long death. It covers all these different areas. When I received that book, it literally walked me through like how to plan a funeral, just things that you may have not had the bandwidth to do that book uh, helped me to do some self-work to be able to look within and go through some practical exercise in dealing with Mark's absence from this world and my need to create a life. Other things that were helpful for me was creating community with other people that were widows or widowers and asking them how How are you enduring this? How is this working? The other thing that I felt that was helpful was my existing community of siblings, family and friends and giving them permission to talk about my husband, give them permission to ask me questions. And on the one year anniversary of Mark's death, I connected with every person that was part of that initial process and asked them, what was it like from their perspective? Case in point, we had a family uh, couple, and I reached out to them the day that Mark died because we were in Delaware two and a half hours from where we both lived. And I called them and I had to say, okay, I need you to just be quiet for a moment. Mark died. I'm in Delaware. Can you come get his car? And they said yes without hesitation. I left the keys out at the lodging because we were on base and they came and picked up his car. A year later, I asked them, what were you and what were you doing when I called you? And they told me we were at a birthday party for someone. And after we got off the phone, they just left, came down. They left immediately from what they were doing. Well, I'm sorry. They said that everyone prayed they were thinking about me, devastated, and did what they needed to do. They literally were in New Jersey, so they had to drive three to five hours, left immediately to come get the car and come back. But if I never asked them that question, they never would have told me because they would not have tried to make what would have been seen a minor inconvenience on their behalf, a huge life-altering situation. Mm-hmm. But it let me know that everyone is impacted that is in your community. And that's why widowhood is the word hood. I'm from Chicago. Hood is family and community. So when my husband died, everyone in my hood was impacted. My parents, my siblings, my children, my financial advisor, my medical consultants, friends, extended family, because it rocks everyone's world. And when I leaned into... Mark's grief with a therapist and communicating, I realized that I did not have to shoulder that burden alone. And then there were other people willing to carry that with me, but I had to give them permission.
0: And I think people want to help, and sometimes they don't know how. So when you ask a direct request, yeah, they'll they'll do it because it's just because I think we're conditioned to want to help others anyway. I think that's all there within us, you know, given the right circumstances. You also mentioned the the second year. Um, The second year from my experiences with loss has always been worse than the first year or more challenging because the second year, the reality kicks in. You realize that this is your life moving forward Um, and that your loved one isn't going to come back. We're faced with reality. And the emptiness accompanies the pain of loss, I think, for the first year. Um, And the power of support and community, you can't underestimate that, I can't, as far as it's helped me get through uh, the worst loss of my life with the transition of my daughter, Janine, in in 2003, without the support of community, not only other parents or other individuals who were veteran grievers, it was my students, it was my friends, it was anybody in that community, again, who were impacted by my daughter's transition. They were all there to help and they they got me through the, those moments. And like you, all the training I had as a therapist Tina didn't even begin to prepare me for the path that I, I was going to walk after losing a child. And, you know, for you being with Mark for 32 years, that's a significant portion of your life. And that has got to be just as traumatic in terms of How, what do I do now moving forward? Who am I without my soulmate, the love of my life? And what kind of a world do I want to live in now? And how do I define that world without the physical presence of Mark?
1: You bring up some good points. And first of all, my condolences for the loss of your daughter. We learn in time to talk about things like this, but it still impacts us. There is no amount of time that the world seems right in their absence. It becomes a world that you learn to live in. It becomes a world that you learn to make the best out of. But there seems like there's just a sliver of something missing in when you're interacting and just engaging. It's interesting. I hear a lot of people use the term, the love of your life. I've never used that term in regular everyday conversation. We use those terms when we write obituaries or when we're philosophically talking about someone, but it's not so much as a term that we hear people use on a regular, everyday basis. And I th- when I think about that, I realize that may have been one of the things that saved me, because if I would have thought Mark was the love of my life and he died, what life do I have? In his absence. Mm-hmm. And words, as you know, have meaning. And depending on that message that we tell ourselves, that becomes the message that we follow. It was extremely important for me to define the narrative going forward. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying, I know, is for me, there are some people, everyone's grief is differently. But I needed to identify what was going to allow me to remain sane and what steps did I need to take to come to the full reality of leaning into Mark's absence. And what that looked like for me is every time there was something that was happening that I thought I would dabble and allow my mind to pretend he would come back or this was a bad dream or this wasn't a reality. I had to do something to face that. One of those things, uh, I was driving home from work one day and I was thinking about preparing dinner and I thought of like laying out the plates and what I was going to do. And I saw the place that I was going to use, which were some false craft plates that my late husband loved because it was the color blue, this aurora pattern. And it was a place that his late mom had purchased. And I was like, I cannot continue to try to live and eat a meal on the plates that the dead man liked that we brought with his dead mom. There wasn't any life in that for me. Every time I looked at the plates, I would start crying, getting them out. And I was like, Tina, you got to stop this. This is not working for you. So in that particular scenario, I packed up those plates, put them in a different part of the house, and I went and purchased some plates. That gave me life. And just that simple change altered my thought about eating dinner. It no longer became a sad moment. It became something I was like, oh, I like these plates. Let me rearrange this. How does the food Mm -hmm. presentation look? Another thing that I did in trying to alter the scenario is when I came home from work, because I did take three months before I returned, but when I came in the house that looked like the house we had together, I expected him to be in a place where he was before. Mm -hmm. I rearranged the furniture in the entire house. Both of the children had left to go to the military. We went from a bustling home with four people to me by myself. And one day I was up late and just thinking about what am I going to do and half mad at all of them for leaving. It was like, okay, what are you going to do? You have a choice to do whatever you want. So I flipped uh, what was my daughter's bedroom into a place where I could study and pray. I took what was our son's bedroom. I made that the guest room. Uh, Somebody was getting rid of some furniture. I took out what I had and put that in. I changed the basement around and I refreshed the house to suit my needs instead of walking in and being sad. It didn't require me to paint the walls, but all I did was just move a lot of things around in the house and reposition. It was like, okay, if I'm here, then I've got to be here. And that's what it looked like in every aspect of life. I started looking at what can I do to embrace that I am still here. I have a life and a purpose and everything can be expensive. So you have to find the little ways of doing things.
0: Well, the other thing, it's all about shifting our perspective in terms of, you know, how do we choose to move forward after catastrophic loss? And for you, it was doing the arrangements with the house, with the dishes. And it's, it's, it can be just those little things that are, are, can just simply shift our perspective in ways we hadn't thought possible. For me, I had always ruminated over the last moments of my daughter's life because I was the last one to, to witness her last breath and watch her pass into her new existence. So a good friend of mine and mentor and um, colleague, Reverend Patty Farino, originally from Long Island, now living in South Carolina, I really shared that with her. And she goes, what if you look at it as if you were the, the first person to usher her into her new existence? Would that change how you saw the moment of her death. I realized that, you know, individuals, you know, like yourself, whose whose spouse or loved ones died of a sudden death did get an opportunity to do that. But for me, given the, the trajectory of her life and the trajectory of her death, and given the final moments, that helped me look at her last day with more more peace than I had ever looked at it before. And for me, that helped me move a little bit more forward in my grief
1: and that is important it didn't change that they died but it changed what we focused on in that process and you're right everyone's death of their loved one is different one of the things that i cherish regarding being in part of mark's transition into his new life we were living in different areas he was living in virginia I was living in Pennsylvania because we were trying to relocate to Virginia, and he obtained a job before I did. But I literally felt God's prompting that we needed to be together that weekend. And I called him. We were able to spend the weekend in Delaware. That was his appointed date and time to transition from this world. If I didn't listen to that prompting, he would have transitioned from this world in a one-bedroom apartment by himself, and may have not been found for 24 or 48 hours when someone went there. He was a wonderful man. He didn't deserve to die alone. So we were in the hotel room together when he had the heart attack. But even though that probably was one of the most difficult moments to see that experience, But I love him enough at this point to know he deserved to have his wife, who he had loved for 32 years, to be there and not be alone. So I am grateful that I was able to be with him and not separated, that it wasn't a phone call randomly or me have not heard from him and sending someone, a police, to check on his apartment and do all that. And I say that because life will give us promptings. Everybody has a different faith. Everybody looks at life through different lenses. But whatever that guiding point is for you, and you have learned to tune into it, there are some times when life gives you a guide that you don't get a second chance to do. If I didn't listen to that prompting to God to be there with Mark, I know my grief would have been filled with so much guilt, so much anguish that I didn't listen to that prompting. And there may be some of your listeners that are part of this conversation, and they may be now dabbling with the idea of things that they have guilt about that they didn't listen and do. Let me say, you did the best you knew how to do with what you had at that moment in time. Don't guilt trip yourself on what comparison to how somebody else did or didn't. Your journey is unique to you. And whatever you feel like you may have wished you would have done differently. Leverage that experience to make future decisions that are based off of that knowledge and know that you did the best that you could in that scenario, and you'll continue to live and do the best that you can. That's why you're listening to this podcast, to gain knowledge and understanding and to make different
0: choices that you like in life. And that is great advice. Think that you did the best that you could given the, and you are doing the best that you can giving the hand to cars that you're dealt with. I also like how you looked at the moment of Mark's transition. And I use transition, well, other people use died. I use transition to, to talk about the moment of physical death. But what I heard you say was that you felt that you were meant to be with him in that hotel room at that time. He was not meant to die alone. Coming to that understanding, I would think, Tina, also has to redefine the narrative around trauma, you know, rather than being traumatized because you were there when he died suddenly, you realize that I was supposed to be there. There is a duality in my mind with that. The
1: duality is in one hand, I love him still today, and I would change nothing if I knew that that's how this relationship In this physical world would have ended the trauma of watching my husband in that state in everything that happened they go hand in hand sometimes you cannot have the beauty without the pain we cannot often separate the two the relationship that you had with your daughter created that love and that beauty of why being there in her transition of this life was important But there were times that child got on your nerves. There were things that happened. We don't get one without the other. But that trauma exists, but it becomes redefined. Because I remember for when I moved here to Virginia, and it was going on the second and a two and a half year mark, two and a half timeline of Mark's passing. I would get in the car, go to work, and like a Netflix movie, I didn't want to play. That whole day played out in my mind in technocolor every day. Mm-hmm. I could not make it stop from everything that was good and everything that was traumatic and everything that was beautiful. Life comes hand in hand.
0: It does. We can't have, We can't have the yin without the yang. I've told many of my guests that I don't hang around with people who look at happiness as a sole means of fulfillment, because it isn't all about happiness all the time. It's, I have many happy moments, but there's also other moments that define me that aren't necessarily happy, but it makes me who I am. And I I, I wouldn't change who that person is for, for anything in the world at this point. Um, I'm happy, again, uh, with the type of person that I am which is genuine and being in touch with every aspect of, of my emotional spectrum. So um, what else do you want to let what tell the listeners about Merck in terms of what made, what makes him so special?
1: You know, thank you for that question, Dave. My husband was selfless. He was a international brotherhood of electrical workers, electrician. And when there was not work in our area, he would travel to where work existed, where construction was going on. And one item I remember in particular, he moved to an area, he could not find a hotel right away. And the hotels that he saw were more expensive than what he wanted to pay because he was the full breadwinner of the family. I was staying home with our children and he slept in a tent at a KOA for several months, sent money home to his family as I was staying home full-time with our children to sacrifice his comfort to make sure that he was caring for his family. I remember uh, my husband was an avid hunter. If it crawled or creaked, he thought he could shoot it and kill it or do whatever and drag it back and thought that we were going to eat it. Not always, but you know, he thought that was going to happen. And one time he went for a hunter's breakfast. They would get together in Pennsylvania before hunting season started. And all the guys and gals and whoever goes out hunting. And he went out to the breakfast. It was super early. And when he came back, he realized he didn't have his keys. But he found a way to enter the sunroom that was connected to the house. He slept out there in that cold room. Until we woke up and woke and knocked on the door to to say that he was out there. I remember one year for Valentine's Day. I was at work and a family friend was asking me where I was. Then we kind of worked on the same installation. I told him where I was coming to. And they said, Okay, I'll meet you there. And I was like, Okay, you know. And he said, I need you to sit right here. And I was like, I don't even understand. My husband sent an entire quartet to my office to sing four songs to me and give me a single rose. He, at this point, I didn't even have a Valentine's Day card for him. I didn't know like what I was doing. I came home and him and the children were just laughing cause they were all in on it and they knew. We I went to Iraq for six months um, for deployment for my job uh, with the government. And my husband was a a photographer in the military for uh, military intelligence. And he's been in some very dangerous situations. I'm on the phone with him and we start taking incoming to my location. And I was like, I have to go because we have incoming. This burly European thick neck Pennsylvania guy lost all his mind, starts screaming through the house. Your mom's taking incoming. I was like, seriously? Like, like you know how this works. You've been in the military. <laughs> but when it came to his family, he attended every soccer game in practice. He showed up and knew, made his presence known. Mark was a wonderful husband. He showed his children how to do anything they needed to do to survive in this world. And I am fortunate to have been his wife.
0: He sounds like just a really incredible man, and thank you for for sharing a, a a little bit of Mark with with me and the rest of our audience, Dean. I love hearing stories about those about people who have passed because it's like their life comes alive through the voice and through the eyes of the people who are remembering them. We love to hear their names. We love to have an opportunity to share stories. Doesn't matter how long it has been. It's just. Anytime that our loved ones are remembered, it's just, it, it does, I know it does my heart good, and I know it, it does the hearts good of anybody else that I've talked to with individuals who have taken the time to remember. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing again about, about Mark. I recently listened to your first Widowhood Real Talk with Tina podcast, and from what I understand, you love connecting with people. I also heard, and please correct me if I am misquoting you in any way, that you believe that we would all like to connect with people but are afraid to to be vulnerable.
1: Yes. I want to say one thing.
0: I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Please go ahead.
1: One, I want to sit in a spot about what you said about being able to say your loved one's name. Because I think people often feel that if they say their name, they're gonna upset you. You can't get any more upset about that person. And to, if if you're uncomfortable, ask the person, do you mind if we, we say their name? And then you get a a, uh, a reading if it's comfortable. But what you said is so important often for people to know that we like to hear their name. It is not a name that we've forgotten. It's not a name that we placed and never to be said. We say it in our private times. We say their name out loud. We may talk to them in, the, in our private spaces, but we want their names to be uttered. We don't want them to be forgotten. We don't want it to be odd and weird when we want to talk about them. And I just wanted to share that a little bit. Thank you for that space.
0: Well, you're welcome. And the other thing is, Mark is always going to be your husband, regardless of where he 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 is. Janine's always going to be my daughter, regardless of where she is. And relationships don't die because the physical body does. Relationships go on until we transition, and then I, in my belief, is that they will continue in the next dimension. But getting back to the to the vulnerability, what do you think? contributes to the fear of people being vulnerable and how can effectively addressing the fear of vulnerability help us work through grief?
1: Thank you for that question. When we are children, we generally just connect with people and just walk up to somebody and say hi and let's play and just do whatever. But as time, as we start experiencing rejection and we start projecting that that person is going to see me this way, they're going to see my faults, they're going to see my flaws, my insecurities, they're going to reject me. We start thinking of things before we even say hello to people based on past experiences. We, Whether it is someone's height, their skin color, their ethnicity, where they're brought up, we start putting the scenario in our head why they're never even going to look at me. And it prevents for us from authentically realizing that we probably have at least two to three things in common with everyone that are pretty simple. One, we're alive. One, we're somebody's child. And we probably have some relatives that are in common. So if I didn't know anything else about you, I could just say, you know, what were your parents like? Good, bad, or indifferent story. You're on this planet. You have some parents. There are some basic points that we can connect with people. but. Because of past experiences, we portray those we, we, we portray those into people that we meet and it prevents us from connecting because no one wants to get rejected. No one wants to get hurt. So we keep people at a distance. We keep people at bay. We keep people from getting in because they look like somebody else that's hurt us in the past and we don't want to subject ourselves to that. Now, there is some safety in the reality of those things that really show up in those patterns of people that are not going to serve you well. But if that's always your space, you may be keeping yourselves locked in more than you're keeping people out. The way that I think that it has served me in being vulnerable in grief is connecting with people that I have known over time, but I knew that they had lost someone close to them and I picked up the phone, because this is two thousand and seventeen. Everything was in the text, everything was in an email or an i g, and said, "Can we have lunch?" And they go, "Oh, I know your husband died. yes." And they had conversations with me that I felt like was behind the veil that I never heard about the dead spouse talk that I heard at that moment, which is one of the reasons why, in our podcast, the conversation tries to be as transparent as possible because in my mind there is someone listening to this conversation that has lost someone significant and they don't have time for fluff they're on the internet at one o'clock in the morning they're searching podcasts and conversations Mm -hmm. about dead loved ones dead spouse and they need to know the real deal they don't Mm -hmm. need to hear something that's uh, all put together nicely they want to hear an authentic conversation that someone's being transparent to share what their experience is like so they know that they are not alone that they know that other people have traveled this road and it is possible to live and create a life of finding your why and your joy and that you can do that for yourself so that vulnerability served me well in the initial throes of my particular grief And I believe it serves it well as the Widowhood Real Talk with Tina, whether it's social content or it's a podcast or it's an event that we're having because we give ourselves permission to continue to love and to live and enjoy life. It gives us an opportunity to find a life that we can thrive. It's not Mm -hmm. about just getting recoupled. It's about realizing... I never got to roller skate and I wanted to go do that. I like doing long walks and that would do me well. But if I'm vulnerable enough for someone to speak into me instead of the idea that my sadness is the only way to represent my love to my loved one, but having a life that I honor them and in my joy and giving myself permission to be vulnerable, to say everybody else may want to grieve like that, but I don't want to be stuck in that place forever. I am living and I want to be alive.
0: And thanks. And thank you for that, Tina. That's a, that's a, a very, very, I think great take on vulnerability and for me I think I, I think you're right. I think history has a has a great role to play in our inability to be vulnerable because we have all these past types of past interactions, past perceptions playing in our head. Being vulnerable doesn't mean I need to trust you as a lifelong friend. It means I I am comfortable with you enough to share a feeling that or a thought that I know you can give me some perspective on. And in that moment, I feel comfortable enough to share that with you, trusting. That you're going to give me what I need at that at that particular time in my life and the resource that I need, and being vulnerable is about being accessible, saying I, I i'm I'm ready to listen, but it doesn't mean we have to have a lifelong relationship with each other. It just means in the moment you're the person I choose to help me through that moment.
1: I agree, and that trust is something that we build upon the one conversation where we're in that place and you show yourself faithful allows me to maybe extend myself a little bit more and maybe a little bit more. That trust may be in the constraints of work. It may be a relationship that you met somebody at your child's soccer game. It could be someone that you see at the library or at a book club. We sometimes we have relationships and those trusts are within the parameters and where we've met the person. Is some of those relationships mm-hmm. transcend where we met them and become lifelong friends. I have a friend that we started off at work. We literally started work the same day. And we have become friends for life. And I am grateful that we took that leap to expand our friendship from that workplace. And it turned into a friendship that has been forever.
0: And those Initial moments can turn into lifelong friendships, you know, and that's happened for me, and I know it's happened for, I'm sure, a lot of our listeners as well, too. So tell our listeners about your 501c3 Widowhood Real Talk with Tina. What services do you provide to the widowhood community to deal with grief, and what do you believe has been the impact of your organization and those that you have served?
1: Thank you. Dave, Widowhood, Real Talk with Tina, like you said, is a registered 501c3. And that is important because there are business partners and people that want to support a nonprofit that they believe in. And every penny that we receive is given to the work of the Widowhood. There are no paid employees. Every dollar that we receive goes to doing something. I have a full-time job and all the people that are on the board, they are fully employed. We support people in three different lanes. The first lane is with social content. That social content ranges between a weekly podcast on different topics that are related to grief, whether it is someone sharing their grief journey and giving them a safe space to be candid, or it is a professional that some places in that hood that connects to grief. We had someone as a supervisor talk about how they can support employees during grief. We've had conversations with people in hospice care, deaf doulas, financial advisors. Next year, we're going to have a conversation with a real estate um, person to talk about when your spouse or loved one dies and you need to transition out of that family home and maybe downsize. What are some economic impacts? So the conversation is a full spectrum. And our podcast is on 15 different podcasting applications, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. If you have a podcast, you can find it there. The other way with social media is social content that we put across six different platforms because when you are grieving, you oftentimes feel muted or feel like other people don't understand or feel like it's a difficult part reaching out to other people. But what do we always have? Our phone and the internet. So if Mm -hmm. you look up Widowhood Real Talk with Tina on any social platform, you'll find some content that we place there to try to bring hope and encouragement and healing to people. The second way in which we support the grieving community is through actually creating community. We have a private Facebook group where we give people space to talk about their grief. We meet virtually twice a month via Zoom. We also have um, a platform where we do virtual events. Most of our events you can find on Eventbrite or on our website. We have an annual event in August called Walk for Love where we ask people to walk one mile a day for seven days. Because when you are grieving, you often stay in your house, you stay closed off, and your health is usually impacted when you grieve. So going out to walk, seven days, what does seven days usually do? Create a new habit. Getting outside in August is pretty a decent amount of sun. Vitamin D always helps and inspires you to low-key connect with the world and we just, but not having to actually be in someone else's presence. You can walk around the block. A mile is generally about the most, if maybe someone has not been exercising, that they can do after consulting their doctor. We provide people with free books on grieving. As I mentioned earlier, I wasn't ready to say goodbye. And the event that we're having in December 2nd, is actually an in-person event for people that are local in this area. We have someone that has donated to cater to our event and provide that on Thanksgiving Day. I know this will air afterwards, but Christmas Day and New Year's Day, I am doing a one-hour Zoom at 10 o'clock Eastern time because the holidays are super difficult when you are grieving. So the major holidays to to be able to connect with someone in the morning to kind of set that off. I will be in my pajamas with some hot chocolate and there may be some festivities, but for people to know that they are not alone. We have a breath work event uh, showing people how to deep breathe because when you're grieving, you are hyperventilating through life. So if you go to widowhoodrealtalkwithtina.org and go to our event page, you'll see different ways that you can connect with us. And most of our events are free because of the financial support of business partners and being able to support that. The third way that we support people that we're looking to do in 2024 is when someone dies often unexpectedly, when it is the widow or whoever is left financially distraught, being able to navigate life can be difficult. We often have conversations about when if something happens, the conversation really needs to be when something happens. As you mentioned earlier, death of death in this world is a passage that we all have to experience, and unfortunately, people do not plan always accordingly. So our goal, as we are starting with uh, Giving Tuesday, all the way till January of twenty twenty four is in hopes of raising at least $10,000 with the goal that when a widow or widower comes to us and fills out the scholarship application, that we would want to be able to pay a utility for a year, to be able to maybe pay a phone bill, something to ease that financial burden. The other thing that we're looking to do is be able to provide college scholarship funds at least $1,000, maybe pay for books because when a spouse dies and you are not prepared, I have seen people leave cars, leave homes, become financially distraught because they don't have the means or leverage to be able to be helped. So our desire is to do those different things. You ask me how do I feel like Widowhood Real Talk with Tina has been helpful to the widow community? Oh my gosh. The conversations that I have with people with our one on one peer to peer conversations when someone is saying, "I now know that somebody else understands me, that I am not alone when someone has been listening to our social content, and one person said that they had been in the house for months, and from listening to our social content, they uh sought out a emotional support animal and they start seeing a therapist that they realize that having a therapist is okay, that they are not weak because they need help. If we cut our arm in a motor accident, we would not just walk around and say, I got this under control, I'm going to tie this up. But when things happen, and you know this being a therapist, in between these two ears, we think that we know how to handle that. But that pain of the death of our loved one Is slipping out and showing up in our life in so many spaces. Being able to share that I sought out a therapist, that I went to a support group. Hearing somebody say that in this place where a person may look all together has encouraged countless people. We know that our content from the analytics has been seen in 71 different countries, over 980,000 views. That tells me that there are people out there hurting and seeking a way to validate their grief and permission to learn how to heal and to be able to have a life that they enjoy again.
0: And with that many views, Tina, it also tells me that you're providing information that is useful. You're, You're cutting through the fluff and providing the real deal as far as what it's like about grief and the resources that are available to deal with that um, and to, to work through it. That sounds like you have a plethora of services for, for widows. And that, that's great. It's obvious you're very passionate about what you do and how you do it. And I, boy, I could just, I could just get excited just, just being around you for about a couple hours or so. I could be tired my energy to be uplifted. That's, that's beautiful. One last question. And I know there's probably many takeaways from your life path, but what are one or two things that you want to leave our listeners with tonight that can help them in addressing their own life challenges? Thank you for that
1: question. And you're right. And what I want to say is life is going to be challenging. There's no way around it. By our mere existence, life will be challenging. But I guarantee you I can guarantee you, whatever you experience, there is someone else that has experienced that too.
0: Mm.
1: And you are not alone. That when this challenge happens, tell yourself, I am not the only person in the world that has experienced this. And I will eventually learn how to manage this, be on the other side of this. Don't look that moment where it's right in your face, it's 1,000 levels of intensity, know that you will not always be at that place. If you would have told me on March 11th, 2017, when I was at the end of a hallway, on my knees, screaming that my husband was dying, that life as I knew it at that moment was over, Or when I was diagnosed with breast cancer or any of those different things I can go back and look in life that I feel like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this to be now almost 7, 10, 15 years between the breast cancer or Mark's death, that my journey is now being used to help and encourage other people. I didn't want to hear that at that moment. I was just trying to understand how I could endure, survive, and live this. And I encourage you to seek out other people who have experienced what you have experienced as a guide, as a light, as a a way to understand. You may not mimic their journey. You may take different pieces from different people that you talk to because you are a unique individual and you'll create your own unique path. And don't be afraid to seek out a mental health professional because they have a plethora of opportunities, tools and skills and things to give you that can maybe fast track you through what you're, instead of trying to, you know, forge through it on your own, it's okay to
0: get help. That's right. Yeah. Break through that stigma of asking for help and understand that we aren't alone. We don't have to, we don't have to, to do this by ourselves. I like that. Um, I also like the fact that, yeah, in life there is going to be challenge. Um, we're not going to get through through this life on this earth without going through some some challenges in our lives. Some may be more cha- challenging than others, but, you know, we we learn that with with determination, with persistence, and with the ability to seek help and, and a, like you said, a good therapist. Anything is possible. We can transcend that and become inspiration for others. And I, it's a great message, Tina. Thank you so much. And boy, this has been fun. I enjoyed so much talking with you this evening. I hope we can do this again in the future. Uh, just thank you for being a guest on the podcast, sharing your wisdom and, and sharing your knowledge and uh, your passion with us. Uh, it's it was great to have you on today.
1: Dave, thank you for allowing me to be here. I know you have a lot of people that you think about and everyone may not make the cut. So thank you for feeling like I had something to share that would benefit people and help encourage them and inspire them. And thank you for what you're doing in providing this platform and giving an opportunity for people to learn and to grow and maybe to connect with people they may have never even heard of or known until you made them available.
0: Well, you're welcome, Tina. And with that, that's a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.